Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Perhaps the first thing that we should uh, do here is to give an explanation. Why discuss art? I'm sure that one or two people have uh, thought this. Why discuss art? What relevance has art got to the revolutionary movement and to socialism? Do we need art? Is art necessary? Uh, And I must say that uh, there's one thing that really makes me uh, annoyed. It makes me very angry, as a matter of fact. Is this idea which seems to be floating around in some circles, unfortunately, that uh, workers are not interested in culture. The workers are not interested in art and philosophy and things like that. They're only interested in in, uh, fighting for higher wages, better conditions, trade unionism, class politics, as it is incorrectly called. Bread and butter politics is the expression that's often used. Now, this so-called workerism, I have to tell you, is very far for many experience that I've had of the working class. And what it, what it shows, what it shows is actually a petty bourgeois contempt for the working class. That's what it shows. Something that makes me very indignant indeed. Only a, I'll, I'll be blunt about it because I feel strongly on this subject. Only a petty bourgeois snob from university circles with no experience of the working class could ever think something like that. Now, of course, we, we know that uh, we, do, we don't idealize the working class. The working class is not a sacred cow. I'm personally well aware of that. Of course, there are different layers of the working class, which, of course, has been educated under conditions of slavery, under capitalism, which tramples, tramples on the, any creative spirit which exists. In the, in the population at large. Yes, there are some workers who are more uh, backward, ignorant, reactionary even, oh yes, that's true. And also the workers that are more advanced, different layers. Yes, but we do not adapt ourselves as revolutionaries. We don't adapt ourselves, my friends, to the prejudices of the most backward elements of the class, to the lumpen proletariat, to use the accurate expression, I'll be, uh, I'll call a spade a shovel. You know, the working class has got a face and the working class has got an arse. We don't follow the arse of the working class. We base ourselves on the most conscious uh, elements. You see, there's a problem here, isn't there? And I think this comes to the heart of it. I see this all the time in, in the university circles, you know, these smart asses, the uh, so-called uh, postmodernist crowd, you know. Insofar as they consider the working class at all, they regard it as just one other among among many others who are oppressed. It's an oppressed class. Poor things, poor devils. We should feel really sorry for them, shouldn't we? Well, that's not how, how I see the, the proletariat. 
I don't see it like that at all. Marxists do not see the workers as the most oppressed people in society. We see the working class, let's be clear about this, as the only creative class in society. Oh yes, that class which creates all the wealth of society upon which everything else is based. Culture, art, everything else is based. And there is, you better believe it, there is among the working class, there's a striving, I would say in almost everybody, everybody, from birth if you like, there is a spark of humanity, a spark of creativity, which is seeking an outlet. There's a thirst, actually. People who are ignorant of the workers don't know this, but it's a fact. I've seen it so many times. There's a spark there which is waiting to be ignited. You know, my friend uh, John McAnally gave a marvelous speech yesterday, I thought, on trade unionism. He made a very important point. He made the point, and it's a fact, that in every strike, this is, this is an amazing thing, in every strike there's always the elements of a revolution, you know that. A strike, oh yes, a strike is a microcosm of a revolution. All the processes are there. And in fact, in every strike you always see, I think John made this point, and he's quite right, people that you thought were backward, you thought the workers that you thought would never respond, but never attended any meetings, never took an interest in politics, would never buy a paper from us, and so on. Suddenly they become conscious. Suddenly. They realize, because a strike, it, it brings out in them the best. It brings out their humanity, their instinctive desire, for what? Not just for wage rises and so on. So that's important, of course, to fight for. We fight for every 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 possible uh, improvement of, of the living standards of capitalism, because without the date, let's be clear about it. Without the day-to-day -day struggle for advance under capitalism, the socialist revolution would be impossible. It's only through the experience of day-to-day -day struggle that the workers will learn. That's true. Yeah, but it's more than that. You must understand. In the course of a strike, the workers cease to become slaves and become active, conscious human beings, conscious of their own dignity, their own importance, their own value, which is normally not seen. And people become, I've seen it myself, people can become transformed in the course of struggle itself. And the struggle for culture is part of the struggle for socialist revolution. Oh, yes. We're not just fighting here for a crust of bread, the idea of... of uh, Bread and uh, bread and butter politics—that's nonsense. Reformist nonsense. We are fighting for something far more profound, a fundamental transformation of society at all levels, starting with culture. Yes, oh yes, and there is a striving for culture. In every, you see this in every revolution. I wonder if I, if I have time, I'll deal with this. How a revolution brings much more than a strike, of course. A re revolution is a strike on a massive scale. And just look at the enormous uplift. Yes, a, a spiritual uplift, I'll give that expression. In any revolution. The French Revolution is a case in point. It's got a very bad press, you know, terrible people, the Jacobins, they killed people, they used the guillotine, so they did. Yes, they did. They, 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 they made a good job with the, the national razor, as it was called, to cleanse French society of this filth that existed, reactionary rubbish that existed, of course. They made a clean sweep. But if the French Revolution wasn't just a, a, a dripping with blood and gore and so on, it was something much more than that. And this was understood by the English poet. You know, this French Revolution had a colossal effect internationally. 
Is that the colossal effect on, on the intellectuals, on the writers, on the artists, on the composers, like Beethoven? Beethoven's symphonies, look at the third, the heroic symphony. Or the fifth symphony, which I think is the French Revolution in music. I've got no doubt about it. Beethoven was quite clear. By the way, it's the anniversary of Beethoven. What a disgraceful misrepresentation of the greatest composer, I think, along with Bach of all times. And all these, all these imbeciles, these clever intellectual imbeciles who I despise from the bottom of my heart, these uh, so-called intellectual ignoramuses, all they had to say about Beethoven, this great revolutionary, a revolutionary in music and in politics, by the way, about which they have nothing whatsoever to say, is that uh, he was deaf. Did you know that? You didn't know Beethoven was deaf, did you? Good heavens above, what a discovery. And that he was very un unhappy in his love life. That's the end of it. A series on the British television, and that's all they had to say about poor Beethoven. They didn't mention the fact that here was a man that stood for the French Revolution. From the bottom of his heart to the, to the end of his life, the Ninth Symphony was an indication of that. But that's another question. I don't want to go into details. To go back to, to England, what an impact it had on the English uh, writers, the poets particularly Robert Burns, my favorite of all, a genuine revolutionary, by the way, all his life. But also Shelley, who Marx greatly admired, by Byron to, to a large extent, and Wordsworth in his, and Coleridge, but Wordsworth in his earlier days, he wrote this marvelous poem called The Prelude. And he was in France at the time, and he wrote the immortal lines, which every comrade should think about which really expresses what a revolution is. You know, I mean, I was, I was in Russia to, to, to digress for a moment. I, I studied Russian in university, Russian philology, language and literature. I did a PhD thesis. I was in the, Moscow in 1970. That was under the Stalinist regime under Brezhnev. And I chanced to meet an old woman, an old lady. She was very old. She'd been... During the revolution, she be a school teacher, I think, on the Volga. And this poor old woman, she was bowed down with, with a life of suffering. She spent 14 years in a Stalinist concentration camp. 14 years, imagine. She wouldn't speak about that. Didn't want to speak about it. But one day I asked her, what do you think? I can't remember her name now. But I said, what, what did you think about the, the, the Russian revolution? And, you know, I never forget this. This woman's face full of suffering and, and, and the lines of suffering. Her eyes lit up. They lit up. And she said in, in Russian, you can't imagine what this was like. You, you've got no conception what it was like. She said, Kakoi Padyom. It's difficult to translate that into English. Padyom means an, up, an uplift. A spiritual uplift. That's what a revolution is, my friends. A spiritual uplift of the people. You know, workers crowded into the Bolshoi theatre to listen to operas, which they never had a chance. You could, workers break and soldiers in their great coats. You can see pictures of this. That's what a revolution is about, not just about the crust of bread. And Wordsworth, to go back to what I was saying, he put this so wonderfully, beautifully in his poem, The Prelude. He wrote the following. Blissed was in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. What a wonderful way of expressing the impact of the uplift of the revolution, the spiritual uplift that it 
the fact that it's had on, on all thinking people everywhere. Oh yes, the working class have got that spark. It's there, seeking an outlet. You can believe that striving is there, of course. I speak from my own background. I, I, I happen to come from a very poor working class family in South Wales. My grandfather, George, was he was a steel worker, tin plate worker, and a communist, a lifelong communist. And in my house, I can tell you, there was always uh, classical music, it, Italian opera in the main, ben, Benjamino Gili was regarded as the Italian tenor, was regarded as God, and the house was full of books. I've still got some of them behind me on the shelf. My grandfather had the, the Origin of Species by, by Charles Darwin and Anti-During by Frederick Engels and so on. So don't tell me, please, that workers are not capable of acquiring culture because they are. I'll tell you something bluntly. For my sins, I spent seven or eight years in an elite university, Sussex University in those days in the 60s. It was only just opened. And it was more difficult to go to Sussex than to go to Oxford and Cambridge, I'm telling you. There were only 300 students there. We had one-to-one -one tuition, you know. And... You see, this, this, uh, these are surrounded by these so-called intellectuals. Anyway, when I became a, a postgraduate, I had privileges. I had the right to eat in a canteen. Special canteen. Oh, yeah, there weren't supposed to be any such things here. <laughs> this was not generally known. We were all supposed to be equal, you see, these progressive liberal types, all, all equal. All the, we're all the same, yeah, sure. So they, the, the staff had a special canteen. Very nice, clean, tidy, waitress service. They served you at the table. The food was much better quality than downstairs in the student canteen. And cheaper. Yeah, so I thought, well, this can't be bad. I'll give it a try. I think I went there twice. And then I went down to eat with the students again. Why? Not because of any particular moral scruples or egalitarianism. No. Because I could not stand the trivial conversations at the table surrounding me by these so-called intellectuals. No, 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 my friends, no. <laughs> Talk to me about intellectuals and academics is the sore point. And I'll tell you something else. I don't uh, idealize the work, as I will tell you this. In the course of my life, I'll be talking about what half a century of political activism, more than that. 60 years, I think, I've been active in this movement. Um, I'll tell you, I have found more genuine culture, seriously, I found more genuine culture, genuine culture, among workers, active workers in, in particular, than I ever found seven years in the so-called elite university, but we'll leave that subject to one side. Let's go back to the opening question, which remains unanswered. Why should we take an interest in culture? Now, what, what day is it today? Uh, what day is it today, Jack? Remind me. Oh, it's Sunday, isn't it? The Lord's Day. And as comrades who know me, know, I, I like to quote the Bible, you know. And you know what the Bible says? It says many beautiful things, many wise things. The Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone. Ah, yes. Man shall not live by bread alone. Can you imagine a world without art, without music, Without color, without poetry, can you imagine such a world? I think such a world would be very difficult to, to, to tolerate. A gray world, 
emptied of all genuine human content. That's what you're talking about. That's, of course, what they accuse us of, you know. Uh, the, the enemies of socialism assure us that under socialism, we all go around in blue boiler suits and, uh, I don't know, listen to military marches or something like that. No, 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 no. No, art is important, you know. It is important. Even now, many people, many ordinary people, working class people, if you like, are quite passionate about music. I won't say what sort of music. Or the cinema, you know, they go to the films, they, or even the stuff they put on television. This dramas and things like EastEnders and so on. Yeah, all right, fair enough. It is it is bad art. It's bad art, but it is art of a sort, isn't it? It's art of a sort, caricature of art, nonetheless. And without these things, by the way, without these things, the life of most people, most workers' life, is, is boring, tedious, monotonous, dreary, hard work. The amount of hours that they spend in work is so many hours out of their life. So many, so much time wasted as far as the human content is concerned. And without these things, without the prospect, without the, the, the prospect of something greater than that, something more than that, life would be quite intolerable as a matter of fact. And Trotsky, paraphrasing the, the, the Bible, wrote an article, a wonderful article, I think you find it in a collection, a marvelous collection, which you should read called Problems of Everyday Life, where he writes about the, the workers in the early days of the Soviet Union, a marvelous uh, work. There's an article, the title is very striking. Not by politics alone. That's the title that Trotsky put. You know, I sometimes think that some of our comrades, at least perhaps many of them, are too narrow. I have that impression sometimes, unfortunately, you know that we don't take sufficient interest in culture, art, and things like this. This is wrong. This is wrong. And theory, if it comes to that. You know, some of you people talk about theory being abstract and so on. Let me tell you, unless you have a grasp of abstract thought and abstract thing, you'll never get past the first chapter of Capital, I'll tell you that. Free of charge. Oh, that doesn't matter. And the great Marxists, by the way, these great uh, people, they were cultivated men and women. Marx and Engels actually wrote uh, a lot about uh, art and literature. It's not certainly realized as a fact. There's a whole volume you can pick up. I don't know, you might be able to get it. It might still be in print. Marx and Engels on literature and art, I recommend it. Lenin also, his, his writings are, are full of references, particularly to the great Russian writers. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Gogol, and so on and so forth. Sartikov, Shedrin, and so on. And Trotsky, of course, wrote a great deal of marvelous penetrating stuff about uh, art, both before and during and after the revolution. You know, it's not an accident. People who think that art is not important and why, what role can it play in the revolution? Look, why did Trotsky in 1939, or 38, was it 38? I beg your pardon, it was 38. He wrote a manifesto, actually, on revolutionary art, together with the French uh, surrealist poet, André Breton. You know, earlier than that, he collaborated with Diego Rivera, the, the, the great Mexican painter. Oh no, he certainly thought that art was uh, was worthwhile. But let's go back to my earlier question, which is a bit more profound than that. Is art necessary? You know, some things in life are necessary. To stay alive, food is necessary. Clothes are necessary. 
A roof over your head is necessary. But is art necessary? Now, there's a great book, again, which I recommend to you, written by the Austrian Marxist, Ernst Fischer. I think it was written about 1950, thereabouts, I'm not sure. And the title of this book is The Necessity of Art. Now, that's a provocative thought, isn't it? I mean, art, after all, you may like it, you may dislike it, but is it necessary? Look, you've got art today in, in people's houses that are painted. They're painting on the wall, probably in your house or your mother's house, father's house. There'll be a painting on the wall. It's been there for years. Yeah, you never look at it. <laughs> it's there. It's there as an adornment, as an ornament. That's certainly not necessary, is it? And yet, and yet, you see, there is something in art which is clearly inherent and necessary to, to our nature as human beings. You know, it's not an accident that uh, art existed, coexists with the origins of the human species of Homo sapiens sapiens. Oh, yes. Thousands, many thousands of, of years ago, in the cave art of uh, Altamira and, uh, and what's it, uh, Lascaux and so on and so on, uh, fantastic paintings, which in some respects, I think, in some respects have never been, as, as depictions of animals, has never been uh, improved upon. Now, the interesting thing is this. Where is this art to be found? Okay. By the way, it's not, probably not true that our ancestors lived in caves. That's probably not true. They might have spent some time in caves, too. But insofar as they did dwell in caves, it would have been in the outer part of the cave where there was light and air and so on. Yeah, but those works of art are not to be found. They're never to be found in those accessible places. On the contrary, that those paintings are to be found only in the deepest, darkest, and most inaccessible parts of the cave. So, Whatever the function of this cave art was, and you could, there could be some discussion about that, it certainly was not a mere adornment like the painting on the wall, which I mentioned earlier. Certainly not that. No, it, is some, it was something important to these societies. It was necessary. Just imagine the scene, brother. Imagine the scene. Use your imagination for a moment. A man or a woman, we don't know. It could have been a woman crawling on their belly in spaces barely big enough for them to crawl through in complete and utter darkness, lit only by the flickering light of a primitive lamp of animal fat. And with this, and under these conditions, they painted the most marvelous works of art. Yes. And what's the content of this art? By the way, I think that picture is quite symbolic, perhaps of our whole existence, our whole history, isn't it? The struggle of humanity from darkness to light. That's a very interesting idea. And that really is what the, the, what the revolution is all about. But what is the content of this early art? <clears throat> now, here's an interesting point. I tell you what's not in it. No flowers. No trees, although there were plenty of flowers and trees around. No flowers, no trees. No vegetation of any sort. No human beings either. Well, insofar as there are, there occasionally the, the human figures do appear, but they're like matchsticks men. They're very poorly, poorly represented. 
although these painters were, were quite capable of, pre of presenting forms, physical forms, quite accurately. Animals uh, is the content. Animals are the, the sole content of this one. It's animals. And these animals are depicted very precisely. That's why showing a precise knowledge of anatomy, as a matter of fact. And I think in, as, as depictions of animals, I don't think they've ever been improved on, it's my personal opinion. And these are not any animals. It's not by choice. These are animals that were hunted. And we're talking here about hunter-gathering societies. It's not an accident. It's not, not all animals that, 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 that are hunted, by the way. But usually they're animals that are, are, are big and powerful and strong and difficult to hunt. Bisons, mammoths, and, and so on and so forth. And of course, this art was clearly connected with religion, clearly connected with, with early religion and rituals, which I have no doubt whatever, were connected in some way, maybe indirectly, but in some way connected at controlling these animals and giving us human beings power over them. That was the idea. It may be an oversimplification, I don't question that, I used to be drawn on that, but I do insist that there can be no question at all that the depiction of hunted, hunted animals with, with arrows and spears in them, it cannot be, uh, it cannot be denied that that's to do with the hunting activity of these tribes. And these rituals, the rituals surrounding these uh, ideas, would be an important part of society. This was social art, by the way, art that meant something to every man and woman belonging to the whole of society. That's how art begins. And then, of course, 10,000 10, years ago, we have perhaps the most important revolution in the whole of human history. I'm referring to the Neolithic Revolution, about 10,000, 12,000 years ago. The greatest revolution, the transition from the early, early uh, communism of the, the, the classless society, of the early hunter-gathering society, to a settled agricultural way of life. And this was accompanied, of course, to the development of private property, of course, private property in land and so on. A sharp division of society between rich and poor, and a corresponding revolution in art and religion. The state rises above society. Engels dealt with this very well in his famous book about the origin of the family and private property. The state rises above society. At its apex, you've got the, the god king or pharaoh, whatever you care to call it, who in turn is surrounded by a privileged caste of priests and, and, and state officials in charge of public works. And here you see a transformation of art and the emergence of a new kind of art unlike anything that was seen before. Monumental art, huge pyramids, palaces, temples, and statues of the gods. In other words, let's be clear about it. Here for the first time, art becomes the private property of the ruling class. And the masses, the great majority of humanity, are shut out, alienated, shut out of culture altogether. This art, of course, this new art is an art uh, uh, with a message. It is, it's got a message. The message is quite clear from the surviving uh, samples of this art. If you take a, if you live in London, as I do, you take a trip to the British Museum, to the central gallery downstairs, 
the Egyptian gallery, of course, upstairs, but downstairs in the central gallery, there's the remnants of a huge statue of a pharaoh. I've forgotten which one it was, doesn't matter. The arm alone, the arm alone is bigger, considerably bigger than the height of a man. Now this pharaoh's long dead, he can't speak to us. And yet he still speaks to us. <laughs> this man still speaks to us. This, uh, the language of this statue is clearly understood. I am big, you are small. I am powerful, you are weak. I am the Pharaoh, the King of King and Lord of Lords, and so on and so forth. It's really one, one of the characteristics of this art, it's not 100% correct, but one of the main characteristics is its conservatism. With slight variations, this type of art remains fairly constant for thousands of years. And that's not an accident, because art is now the servant of religion, and religion is the servant of the state. And religious conventions determine the, the contents of art. The, the priests determine what, what, what can and cannot be de depicted. It's true that it is, uh, there are flashes, occasional flashes, of uh, realistic portrayal of men and women. That's not the main, main, main picture. No, the big change comes with Greek uh, art. I'm skipping a lot of stages. I can't deal with the entire history of art in, in half an hour, of course. For the first time, we feel at home with this Greek art because it shows the human figure in a realistic way. Fairly, not quite realistic because it's idealized, but nevertheless, these are recognizable human beings, not, not half animals as they were in Egyptian art. Recognizable, marvelous descriptions, beautiful descriptions of the, of the human body of men and women. These depictions, of course, were wiped out, were eliminated in the Middle Ages after the barbarians overthrew the Roman Empire. And culture was thrown back for a thousand years. I know that's not fashionable to say, but it's true nonetheless. Couldn't care less what the postmodernists say. The postmodernists try to tell us that there's no such thing as progress in history. Well, I beg to differ. I think there's a little bit of progress between the world of microbes millions of years ago and the world of Albert Einstein and Karl Marx. But there we are. This is my, my humble opinion. Yeah, they try to say that there's no such thing as progress and no, no such thing as, as retrogression either. But there is retrogression, for goodness sake. It's true that the slave society of Greece and Melissa, let's remember that the culture of Greece and Rome, its wonderful philosophy, art, science, architecture, and so on, all this ultimately depended on the, the labor of the slaves. Let's not forget that, you know. And Aristotle, by the way, great philosopher, great, wonderful, uh, wonderful mind, he actually wrote in his Metaphysics a very important uh, point. He said the following, man begins to philosophize, he's men because they, they didn't consider women in those, it doesn't matter, he means the human race. Man begins to philosophize when the necessities of life are provided. And he goes on, consequently, mathematics and astronomy were discovered in Egypt because the priests did not have to work that puts it in a nutshell, that puts historical materialism in a nutshell, doesn't it? That's a fact. But anyway, let's go back to, we come back to that statement of Aristotle, perhaps a bit later on. But with the collapse of the Roman Empire, the slave society entered into its contradiction, it failed for reasons I haven't got time to explain. 
The barbarians overran the Roman Empire, gave it the final push. It was already in the point of collapse anyway. And yes, human civilization was thrown back a thousand years. And these clowns, these postmodernists tried to deny that. Oh no, all cultures are the same, basically. The, the barbarian culture was just as bad as the Roman culture. Really, really, <laughs> tell that to tell that to the to the cats. Tell that to, to some fool that will, will believe it. You know, 1,000 years after the collapse of Rome, the only decent roads in Europe, roads I think is a fairly basic indication of culture, were Roman roads. There we are. There was this culture was, was forgotten, collapsed. And culture and art was, was, was controlled by the, by the dictatorship of the, of the Roman Catholic Church under feudalism. These beautiful pictures of the human body, for example, they were banned, they were prohibited. Oh, no, no, because sex is a bad thing, you see. I don't know how the human race is supposed to survive if there's no sex, but there we are. That was the teacher of the teaching of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, which held back culture for a thousand years. I mean, the, 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 even in the Renaissance, you could get pictures with sta naked statues, which were rediscovered then were covered up, the private parts were covered up with fig leaves and nonsense of that sort. Because the human form and the human being was regarded as something sinful. Oh, yes, yes. And these criminal ideas, they still persist even to the present day, as a matter of fact. The slavery of the human race, the suppression of all that is decent and, hu and genuinely human. So I've got no time to deal with the Reformation, but where there was, again, that was the bourgeois revolution. Oh, yes, the Reformation paved way for the bourgeois revolution. Which, of course, that in turn had effects on art. Art was transformed. For the first time, for example, if you notice this, you probably didn't think about it. For the first time, you got portraits of, of realistic portraits of men and women. Wasn't the case before. They had to be religious and they had to be stylized. And so, no, no. Look at the, look at the wonderful paintings of Rembrandt. Again, you'll find them in the National Gallery, some of them. If self-portraits as a young man and as an old man, they really are. Profoundly moving, you know. You see here the, the, the development of old age and so on, suffering etched in his face and so on. There are other things I haven't got time to deal with this. Uh, of course, uh, the type of society is reflected in art. It's reflected in the classicism, for example, in France at the time of before the French Revolution, where everything was rigid and dramas had to take place in one place and 24 hours and so on and so forth. It's reflected even in the art of gardening. Yes, gardening also is a kind of art, isn't it? Take the Palace of Versailles of Louis XIV and the famous gardens. What do you notice about these gardens of Versailles? Eh? Geometrical, straight lines, all as if nature could be subjected to the absolute rule of the monarch. He decides everything. Even nature must be in a straight line, must be orderly, must be controlled and so on. All of this, of course, was swept away by the French Revolution, which I've mentioned, which was a great emancipatory, uh, despite what they say, the, the nonsense that they say, the slanders which they still say against the French Revolution. It was a colossal human emancipation which had effects throughout Europe. Now, I have to cut this short for lack of uh, time, but in our, in, the, in our own times, I would say the last, uh, century or so, you've got the Russian Revolution, which again, as this, well, this woman once told me, was a great emancipation. 
And contrary to what they say, the Russian Revolution, again, was greeted and was welcomed by the great bulk of the progressive intelligentsia, the intellectuals and so on. Writers like Bloch, the symbolist, Mayakovsky, who joined the Bolshevik party, known as the drummer boy of the revolution, Yesenin and other people, artists like Larionov, directors like Meyerholt, who was murdered by Stalin, Shostakovich, who I consider, Dmitry Shostakovich, a product of the revolution that I consider to be the greatest composer of the 20th century and so on and so forth. This was an, an enormous flowering of culture, at least for the first 10 years after the revolution, until it, in turn it was crushed brutally crushed by the Stalinist counter-revolution. And of course, let's be clear about it. Totalitarianism has got nothing to do with uh, revolution and Bolshevism. And totalitarianism and dictatorship is the death of art. Art, in order to thrive and flourish, must be free. <laughs> Genuinely free. Without that, it's no good. It will not the so-called socialist realism, which was imposed by Stalin and the bureaucracy, it reduced art, really, most of it reduced the art to the trivial level of the kind of paint you see on chocolate boxes in, in, in supermarkets, you know, this is trivial. Typical of the mentality, the Philistine mentality of the, of the bureaucracy. But you see, art still plays, play, plays, can play a role in revolution, it did. Look at the wonderful posters of the constructivist posters published at the time of the revolution by people like Mayakovsky, precisely. Or let's take the, the Spanish Revolution. And here again, you see how, how pernicious and false it is to say that the masses, that the workers are not interested in that. You take a man, for example, like a great poet called Miguel, Miguel Hernández, probably you've never heard of him, a great, one of, I think one of the two greatest Spanish poets along with Federica Lorca, who was murdered by the fascists in 36. Miguel Hernández was, again, murdered by Franco in a kill, allowed to die anyway in a, in a prison cell after the Franco victory. Miguel Hernández started life as a shepherd, a dirt poor peasant. And he discovered that he had, had this spark within him to write, to express his soul. His innermost soul expressed in poetry, which he did, right in the most fantastic book. And I'll tell you what, Miguel Hernández, who supported the revolution 100%, visited the front line, went to the trenches, and the workers and soldiers and militiamen listened spellbound, as they did to Mayakovsky in Russia, to this wonderful poetry from this wonderful man who was murdered by the Spanish reaction. And while we're on the subject of Spain, I mentioned another, the, probably the greatest artist of the 20th century, Pablo Picasso. Yes, you've heard of Picasso, no doubt. Yes, of course you have. Did you know that Picasso was a card-carrying card member of the Communist Party? Perhaps you didn't know that. Oh, yes. And he produced perhaps the greatest painting of the 20th century, Guernica. In 1937, the, 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 the German and Italian fascists bombed a small village in, in which is very important for the Basque people, the village of Gernica, destroyed it in a barbarous manner, on a market day, slaughtering men, women, and children. And Picasso was so incensed by this act of barbarism that he went and painted a vast painting, a vast painting. It's huge. If you haven't seen it, you've seen reproduction. That's no good. Go and see the original in Madrid. 
And it causes, I'll tell you, it will transform you. See this painting, it, it, it impacts you in black and white. It shows the reality, the barbarism of war. You know, a, a woman that is holding a dead baby in, in her hand is, is, is with a howl. It's, you can't hear it, but you can hear it. This is, a paper, this is a painting that screams at you, although it's mute. It screams at you, the horror of the situation after all these years. Dead bodies strewn on the floor, mangled bits and pieces of cadavers and so on. Warriors with broken swords, a horse which been penetrated by a lance and, and a bull, a raging bull representing fascism. A light, that's the most, a light which flashes, this must be the effect when incendiary bombs are dropped, if there's a flash of light and so on, bringing death from, from above. Here is a remarkable, a remarkable painting and a remarkable document. Now, here's a question for you. Can great art be propaganda? I don't think so. It, I don't think so. I don't think so because for one reason, art must have its own reason to exist. Okay? Art must express what is within the, the painter or the poet or the musician without any external pressure or instructions or orders or control, whether that's from the Roman Catholic Church or from the Roman Empire or from a fascist or Stalinist dictatorship, or from a political party, or from myself or anybody else. Nobody, nobody should tell an artist what, what to produce. It must come from within themselves. And who can, in the case of Picasso, yes, he was a member of the Communist Party, but uh, that wasn't the reason why he did this painting. Nobody told him to do this painting. It was not a cheap uh, piece of propaganda. No, no. It came straight from the soul and expressed an inner indignation and a rage against the terrible injustice that exists. Uh, by the way, he actually said, uh, I quote, I am a communist and my party is the communist party. That's exactly the exact words that he said. Now, I've got to draw my remarks to a close, but comparing that, oh, and there are other things I've mentioned. My favorite artist of all times is, the Fran is uh, Goya, Spanish, wonderful Spanish artist. Who again, this, we go to the Prado and it's, one, it's really wonderful. It's stunning and it's far, far in advance of his age. He's a man that lived through the horrors of the Napoleonic period, the wars and the terrible atrocities. And he wrote a series of etchings called The Disasters of War. I think that the Gernik come, come, comes from that origin. And his dark paintings, the, the early paintings of his life are full of sunshine and happy men and women enjoying themselves with guitars. And, festivals and so on. Here you have a dark period. His last paintings, the black period, was he painted them on the walls of a house. I don't think he ever meant them to be seen by anybody. Full of monsters and terrible suffering and the Inquisition. And reaction, that's it. That's the reaction in a nutshell. Yeah, this is genuine art. And it's art. Nobody is imposed this. It's not, it's not cheap propaganda at all. It's how a human being, like Beethoven's music also, it reflects his inner reaction of his soul, of his mind and heart and soul to the sufferings of humanity. And what is art if it is not connected to the sufferings of humanity, I ask? How can an artist cut the idea, oh, art for art's sake, what are you talking about? What a meaningless expression, art for art's sake. It's like saying carpentry for carpentry's sake or bricklaying for bricklayer's sake, it's nonsense. Art must be for something. 
And artists don't paint for themselves, actually. They paint. And they must relate themselves to society, to what is occurring. That's a clear fact. And what do we have now? What do we have now? Look at the degeneration of capitalism. Just look at it. Just look at it. At the lamentable spectacle of art and music and culture today. I don't care what anybody says. I know there's different opinions. There's, I got my own opinions. And so I will defend those opinions. I'll state them bluntly. Art today is in a complete blind alley. Because the capitalist system is in a blind alley. That's a fact, a simple fact. Of the but look, look at this wonderful painting that Picasso did. In the last few years, you've had terrible, brutal wars in Syria and so on. It's so terrible sufferings. In, or the Congo, where uh, five million people, men, women, and children, were brutally slaughtered in the most terrible manner. Where is the equivalent of Goya's disasters of war? Or Pica Picasso's getting, where is it? Instead of that, you know what we have? I'll tell you what we have, an unmade bed. That's what we have in Britain, so-called Brit art, or a shark in formaldehyde. Now, I know what the message of Pablo Picasso's Gedrick is. What's the message of a, of a shark in formaldehyde? I'll tell you what it is. It's a shark in formaldehyde, okay? And it costs a lot of money, of course. These guys are making a packet. Out of this trivial art, it is trivial, my friend. And actually, I must say, I've got much time for art critics, but the most transient example of art criticism I've ever come across in my life was a few years back. There was a, a, a female Japanese artist, I can't remember her name, and she produced a wonderful work of art. It consisted of uh, ashtrays overflowing with cigarette ends and, and, and ash. And it was in the Tate, the Tate. I don't know if you had the modern in those things before the Tate modern was built. It was in the Tate. And the cleaning lady came across it in the morning and she cleaned it up with a brush and pan. <laughs> I think the Japanese artist was not very happy about it, but personally, I was highly amused. Anyway, what I'm saying to you is this, frankly, modern art today is in a hell of a state. It's just an impasse. Which is not to say that there aren't many talented young artists that are out there that, uh, that could make a difference. Yes, but they, they're not allowed, are they? They don't have access to the necessary funds art galleries or uh, musical uh, studios or recording studios and so on and so on. They don't have this. It's, those are in the hands of the big monopolies. And art has become big business. Yeah. Poor Van Gogh, another great artist who I greatly uh, admire. I don't think he ever sold a painting in his life. I think he sold one that was to his brother. That doesn't really count. He never sold a painting. And now they sell for millions and millions of dollars. And the other thing is this. They're sold to anonymous buyers. What happens to these great works of art when they're purchased for millions and millions of pounds and dollars? Are they put on public display? No, they're lost. They're lost to the human race, which is, should, should have access to them. They're locked up in a bank vault, for God's sake, as, as an investment, as a profitable investment. Now, this is... That detail in and of itself tells you the... the the fact that the capitalist system itself is profoundly hostile to art. And that therefore art itself must be, ought to be profoundly hostile to the capitalist system. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that art itself must be revolutionary. And I would appeal here, I don't know whether there are any artists in the, uh, in the school this weekend, I hope so, or people that are in contact with artists, or maybe artists will somehow get this message, but I appeal to you, you know, 
my friends and comrades, if you want to make art meaningful and give it a genuine meaning, then you must really consider the plight of the human race, the society in which you live, the terrible injustices. Are you really going to stand apart from that? Are you really going to say that your art cannot have any effect or it mustn't represent this? If so, I must say to you that you and I will part company. Because no matter how skillful you are, I'll tell you, no, your art will be meaningless art. Trivial art. Art that has nothing to say to humanity, which great art must do, has done in the past, will do in the future. I won't have anything else to say except to say this, that uh, the purpose of socialism, of course it is, begins with the need to provide everyone with a job and a house and so on and so forth, and healthcare. Yes, of course, those are the immediate aims. But that is not the essential aim of the socialist revolution. It is not. That's only the beginnings. It's only the foundations of the house. It's not the house itself. That socialism, by freeing human beings from the humiliating dependence upon material things, the humiliating search after a job or the need to exist or food or whatever, you know. The, once the, we go back to what Aristotle says, man begins, or humankind, let's say, humankind begins to philosophize when the needs of life are, are supplied. And therefore, it is socialism that for the first time will provide, first time in 10,000 years, will bridge that gap. It will, will break down this Chinese wall that alienates art and culture from the great uh, mass of humanity. It will open the door of culture to the broad masses and therefore will revolutionize art itself. And of course, the masses also will produce great painters and writers and Rembrandts and Einsteins and Marxists in the future. And therefore, opening the way to the development of culture on a far higher level than has ever been seen. As Trotsky put it, it will put, communism will put all the great achievements of the past in the deepest possible shade. And a new era of human civilization will genuinely begin. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.